This is Story Story Late Night, the positively shameless black sheep of the storytelling family, where, in the heat of the summer, we get all pulp nonfiction, live on stage, stripped of notes and inhibitions. I'm your host, Jessica Holmes. Now, it's time to draw on paper stories of pulp, paydays, pulling one over. Held on July 25th, 2016 at the adults-only Visual Arts Collective with host Lita Newsteader. This is the featured act with the real paper pushers, Mac Test, Laura Melhoff, and Rachel Boxa. Because we don't always look good on paper, it's late night stories. No write-offs. The most lovely Rachel Boxa! Okay, following stacked seven feet tall woman with a flower in her, it doesn't matter, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. Uh, I'm Rachel, and uh, this is my paper story. In February of 2012, I was at a bar with my best friends having given up my delicious mug cake and my tights and my couch in favor of drunken debauchery with my girlfriends when they had all bailed on me, and I found myself alone in a bar, pretty wasted. <laughs> I turned around, and the first tall, dark, and handsome man I, said, or I saw, I said to you, whiskey, now. <laughs> he obviously responded well to that. So, so I ended up spending the rest of the evening flirting with him. Um, a month later, he came back to my place and never left. The following summer, I found myself um, alone in our brand new house uh, with our newborn baby, unwanted, sweating my balls off in an unconditioned, an unair conditioned house <laughs> with an iPhone in one hand planning a wedding. A few weeks, sorry, one week after our child was born, he had proposed to me on one knee in the river with a piece of grass tied around my finger, and I thought, how can I say no to this? <laughs> you know, who needs diamonds? So I spent the summer on my couch trying to plan a wedding by myself. I ordered my dress from Etsy, and I walked my ass to the post office a mile away in incredible heat with... Um, my child in a stroller and my boobs weeping breast milk and sobbing for no discernible reason because postpartum is a myth. <clears throat> I arrived at the post office, stuffed my wedding dress on the bottom of my stroller, didn't look at it once, and went back to my home. I never tried it on before the wedding um, until probably three days before when a woman showed up to help me bustle it in a bedroom that smelled vaguely of nappy because no air conditioning and new babies not equal aromatic friendliness. <laughs> On my wedding day, I spent the morning haggling with a very bossy and very skeptical Asian florist at the Saturday market. I swore to her, I'm not getting married today. These, these flowers are not for a wedding. She said, um, yeah, you're getting married. These are, you, no, no, no. I was trying to drive down the price, and I swore to her I was not getting married that day. But I had no idea that I was right. Um, 
I spent the day kind of in a daze, a little bit like a rabid animal wandering around, not really seeing anything. Um, while my friends and family enjoyed the party, I, um, I went up to my room shortly after the first dance, and um, we were staying at the vineyard where we got married, and I took off my dress and laid on the bed and drank a glass of bourbon and opened presents alone <laughs> for most of my wedding night. Um, and when I finally was rejoined by my groom, he fell promptly to sleep <laughs> in a bed someone had decided to salt as a prank. In all of the adventure and excitement, though, our minister had neglected to sign our marriage license. And so we woke up the next morning, <laughs> drove home to our tiny house with our tiny baby, where my husband's ex-girlfriend was staying for the weekend because she didn't want to pay for a hotel for our wedding. <laughs> and spent an incredibly romantic evening watching her rave about how she couldn't get any good weed in this state. <laughs> we didn't think it was a big deal. We'd just, you know, have Brett sign the marriage certificate the next time we saw him or whatever. Um, and a few months went by and we did see Brett again at, at my husband's birthday. Um, and, uh, and we all jovially sat around a game board, cheersing each other with whiskey-soaked cherries um, while we signed the marriage certificate. The same people that were at our wedding, the same minister, and my husband and I, and we thought, isn't this so much better? It's so intimate, it's so loving, it's so perfect for us. But the days turned into weeks, turned into months, turned into a year, turned into two years, and we never could seem to put it in the mail. There's this little caveat on your marriage certificate, if you look closely, that says, if not mailed after 90 days, void. And so, as things progressed, as we became more and more different, and I sunk deeper and deeper and deeper into some version of postpartum fueled by a husband very wrapped up in his career and a lot of personal bullshit. Um, <laughs> the fights became suddenly, well, we're not even married, so it doesn't matter. You should go because it isn't your house. We're not married, really. It became competitions of whether or not love was love if there wasn't a piece of paper involved. And meanwhile, my writer self posted adorable pictures of our small family on Facebook. <laughs> 75 likes! OMG! You guys are so cute. And then at home later that night, listen, why are we even doing this? It's not like we're married. OMG, God, you guys make the most beautiful babies. Listen, I don't even know why we're bothering with this anymore. Come on, it's not like we have to get a real divorce. And back and forth and back and forth it went. And we had a second child. And in the moments between, we were this shining beacon of, I see you. You see me, you know, it was you, whiskey now, and joy and glory, and then it was get the fuck out of my house. This isn't yours. 
And we oscillated and oscillated and oscillated until one night a tiny voice said, stop talking to my mommy like that. And shit got real, real fast. Because when there are tiny voices around to defend you, you suddenly can't defend yourself acting like a douchebag anymore. And so we separated. <clears throat> we separated, and then we got back together, and then we separated, and then we got back together, and then we separated, and then we got back together, and all of a sudden, all of our friends were tired of hearing about it, and I was tired of hearing about it, and he was tired of hearing about it, and his family was tired of hearing about it, and so suddenly, we were lying to ourselves and each other until we finally decided it was final, it's okay, we're not really married, you go live with your parents, and I'll stay here, and I'll have goats, and I'll have chickens, and everything will be glorious. Don't you talk about my goats like that. And on Thursday night, <clears throat> Jessica said, but how does the story end? And I thought, oh, you know what? She's right. And I had this like personal epiphany where we go after months and months of separation and we show up at the courthouse and we sign the papers because we're not really married and there's just this one little paper we have to sign that dissolves us financially, dissolves our domestic partnership. But we showed up at the courthouse today at 4 p.m. And I stood next to him, and he sat silently. And I stood there, sweating and shaking out my shirt and feeling all emo. And I walked up and pushed the button for a number, the first number, 546. And, um, and we waited in line. And we walked up, and I said, we need to just we need to dissolve a domestic partnership. And they said, there's no such thing in Idaho. You're either married or you're not. You should walk down to that uh, other desk and find out if you're married. And so I tromp from one end of the county clerk's office to the other in a broken shoe, sweating with my tall, handsome husband behind me acting as though he's shopping for new shoes. And meanwhile, I'm step, step, <coughs> step, step, <coughs> okay, breathing. And, um, and we walk to the end of the county clerk's office and we get our third number. And we wait. And they say, how can we help you today? And I blurt before I can stop myself, I need to know if we need to get, mar get divorced. And the woman says, I'm not sure I'm the right person to answer that question. <laughs> I said, me neither. <laughs> but let's try, okay? I'm half sobbing and sweating like a pig. And my shoe is broken. So I'm like literally hobbling through the county clerk's office. And she looks at us and she says, well, did you get a marriage license? And I said, yes. And she said, did you sign it? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, well, did you mail it in? And I said, no. She said, what did you do with it? And I said, we threw it away. She goes, aren't you smart? <laughs> yes, thank you. I'm an idiot. I'll cry on you. <laughs> At this point, there is 
There is no word to describe the level of ridiculousness that is happening. And she looks at me and she asks the final question that just knocked me to the floor. And she said, have you been living like you're married? What does that mean? Um, well, yes and no. <laughs> we share house and kids and chickens and uh, you know a, a mortgage. <laughs> We share a bank account that's empty most of the time. And she looked at me and she said, you're married. You need to go back to the other line. <laughs> so I walk back across the county clerk's office and uh, I look at the original clerk, who I went to twice the first time around, and he said, so yeah, you're married? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I need some divorce papers. And he hands me a stack and he says, but I can't file them here. They need you to come back between 8 o'clock and 3.30 tomorrow. And it suddenly became very clear, you see, because we hadn't been living like we were married. We were waiting for this piece of paper that we could never mail to tell us we were married. We weren't married. We didn't choose each other out as the most important person in a room. And we didn't show each other unconditional empathy and we didn't give that thing that marriage requires. It's not unconditional adoration, it's not hero worship, it's forgiveness. And I never acted like I was married and I showed up at the courthouse all of a sudden with the same attitude that got me into trouble in my marriage. I thought I could just sign a paper and be divorced, just like I thought I could sign a paper and be married. But it turns out that divorce is going to be a lot like being married. I'm going to have to choose it and choose it and keep choosing it. And I'm going to have to look around every room and decide who's the most important person in that room every day. And I'm going to have to fucking do something about those goats. <laughs> Thank you so much. Have a great night. Okay, time for our second featured story teller, the one, the only, Good evening. How is everybody? Feeling good? All right. Well, I also have a story about paper, of course. Paper and payday. Paper and payday. So it was about 1990, 1989. Found myself, uh, I was about 24, 24 years old, so I'll reveal my age. Uh, a young buck, fresh, kind of fresh out of college, living in Seattle. I'd moved there from Minnesota. If anybody's been to Minnesota, you'll know why I moved to Seattle. <laughs> it's a little cold. But I found myself in a coffee shop there, and uh, I was looking for a job. And in those days, we've had a lot of references to Facebook and the internet. This was pre-internet, no internet. You look for a job in the newspaper. Anybody out there ever do that? <laughs> Some of you maybe around my age, looking up the jobs, circling things. And as I was looking through the ads, I'm sitting in this coffee shop, and a fellow next to me pulls out a big piece of paper, covers the whole cafe table, all right, taking up all the space. And it's a nice sort of beige-colored, uh, and it had a map on it. I could tell it was Seattle going down to Mexico with all kinds of colored marker points on it. And he had also sorted out there green and red and orange and blue markers on the table. And then I saw over in one corner a big 
picture the sun. I could see it with your smiley face and rays coming out. And then down beneath it was this sort of table of numbers and things. You know, so I'd, you'd find that interesting, right? What is this piece of paper? What is this guy up to? And he, uh, I asked him, I said, you know, what are you doing here? And he looks over at me, and he had one of those uh, eyes that was a little askance. Um, <laughs> the lazy eye, you know. Um, you never know how to look at somebody like that. Um, you do the best you can. Is this awkward? I don't know. So <laughs> the, the fellow gets all excited, you know, because I'm talking to him. He says, it's, it's the solar flares, the, the sunspots, the, the, the earthquakes. Well, what are you talking about? I said, well, right here, you see the earthquake. These are where all the earthquakes occurred in California, Washington, down into Mexico. And the dates I have, like, orange for November and blue. And it's because of the sunspots. When there's sunspots, there's earthquakes. They're connected. Okay. Uh, you know, I'm looking for a job. Uh, you know anything about jobs? Yeah, I, I, I drive the green tortoise. Does anybody know what the green tortoise bus is? All right. It's kind of like the hippie Mary Prankster tour going from Seattle down to Mexico. They stop off in hot springs and play guitar and smoke weed and have a great time. Uh, but I did wonder about the man with the lazy eye driving the bus. So <laughs> when he said, you know, hey, you could help me chauffeur, I said, no, I'm looking for something else. He said, go fishing, Alaska. I was like, Fishing in Alaska. I'm, I was from the Midwest, hadn't been in Seattle long. I heard about fishing, heard about Alaska, but I didn't know what was up. And he said, oh, yeah, look at it, you know. And I looked through the papers, and sure enough, there was a big ad, you know. Was, Make $5,000 fishing in Alaska. I was 24 years old, 1990, 5000 sounded pretty darn good. I didn't have a job. I was losing all my money at the coffee shop. Well, and at the bars, and well, anyway. But I look for jobs at coffee shops, not bars. Maybe that was smart, maybe not, I don't know. But anyway, so I, I decide, okay, I'm gonna go fish into Alaska, big adventure. I go and apply for this job, and uh, at this time period, in Alaska, you've probably heard of the fishing in Alaska, of course. Factory trawlers, do you know what that is? The big Pollock fishery that's out there. And this was 1990, so it was booming. They were bringing in vessels from Norway and from Germany, and they needed crew on them. And the crew, you know, wasn't all experienced, like myself, because they were desperate. You know, there was like five of these vessels, and each one needed 150 crew, right? So they're hiring people left hand, right hand, top hand, below hand. And they, uh, you know, needed people basically to work in the factory. And I'd heard this as I told people, I'm going to go work on a factory trawler. And they said, you're going to be in this dark, wet, cold dungeon with no windows or portholes, as we call them, sloshing around for 12 hours a day, hardly sleeping, and it's going to be miserable. I thought, well, still $5,000. I'm going to Alaska. So I show up on the boat and I go talk to the, uh, it was a factory foreman there doing all the interviews and he looked at me and I, you know, I submitted a re resume. He still did that even though it's just a fishing boat. And uh, the, he looked at it and he said, you went to college? I said, yeah, yeah, I went to college. He said, and, and it says here, you know how to use a computer. And I said, yeah, I know how to use a computer. He said, okay, you're gonna be the purser. Does anybody know what a purser is? <laughs> Probably not. Okay, I know some people know uh, about the green tortoise, Mary Pranksters. How about Love Boat? <laughs> okay, gopher on the love boat was a purser. This was not a love boat. Well, some loving went on, <laughs> but <laughs> not in that sense. It was a fisherman's loving 
including toys and anything you could find, including, as a captain once said to me, a halibut will do in a pinch. And I said, what? A halibut? And he said, yes, they have no teeth. <laughs> so here I am going to see uh, college educated and learning a different education. And I'm gonna be the person. So they give me a clipboard and they say, go find out who all the people are and who are coming on this boat. Uh, if we need more, you'll go get them. Uh, and I, where do I go get people? It's at the Millionaire's Club. Millionaire's Club? What, anybody know, anybody been to Seattle? And another uh, Millionaire's Club was uh, basically the soup kitchen. So we would go around, you don't Shanghai people, you just find homeless, desperate people and put them on a fishing boat. And then you have workers. And so that's where I picked up a few of the people. I've never done that before and I hope never to again. Purser also like deals with paper, communications. I had to deal with that. We're sending via satellite, you know, to the corporate office and calculating all the money we're earning. And I did use a computer, no internet, but use that computer and then I handled the money. I handled all the money on the boat. I ran the general store, all of this. So I was Mr. Moneybags. So when we were out at sea and came into port and payday hit, guess who everybody had to come see? Me. I was everybody's friend during the whole trip, as you can imagine. Everybody was very kind to me because not only would I give them a check per se or cash a check for a minimal fee, or I would uh, just give out cash, you know, and when we're out at sea, sometimes Cash comes very handy because when there's no fish, you get paid by the, the share of the catch, right? A percentage of the catch. There's not a salary, not a daily wage, nothing like that. If there's fish, you make money. If there's not, you don't. When you're not making money and you're sitting in the middle of the ocean for like three days and no money, people get ornery, antsy. They need to do something. So usually what sailors do when they're not making money, they gamble because they don't have money, right? <laughs> so they come to me to get the money to go gamble. And so I'd hand out these cash requests. Here's 100 bucks to you, 100 bucks to you. Sit at the, of course, I'm sitting at the table. And whenever a sucker sat down, oh, you need another 100? You lost that 100 in the first hand. Oh, yeah, I'll take another. OK, here. You know, and once it got like to 500, 1,000, I was like, I think you, you should go home. Bring on the next one. So I played the house as well, right? You know, And of course, when payday hit, and I'm giving these guys all their money, cash. Some of them had a little less because they lost in the poker games. But when we hit port, of course, what do sailors do, right? <laughs> You're probably wondering and certainly imagining what a sailor might do when he go to port. Some would stay. Some would never leave the boat. For instance, I was called uh, to deal with uh, one fellow who never left his stateroom, and they, you know, it was like the next day, and they said, he hasn't left. I said, what, what are you talking about? I said, yeah, you gotta come see. So I go down into the stateroom, stateroom or bunk room. Stateroom sounds rather official, doesn't it? This is like a bunk room, like six high, and uh, the sweaty story we heard, and the nappy smells, and, and uh, combine fish and oil and diesel fuel, and you get the, uh, and baby stuff, sure, why not? <laughs> it just stinks. <laughs> but you get used to it. So I go in there, and there's a guy sitting cross-legged, sitting right in the middle of the stateroom, kind of cross-legged, head slumped over, hands sitting here. I'm looking at him, he's like, not moving, and he's looking very white, very peaked, ash white. And I come a little closer, his arm's like this, and he's got a needle stuck in his arm, dead as a rock. So this fella never left the boat. Or he did in other spheres. <laughs> but 
Very sad story. But other people, they hit the port. Pioneer Square. <laughs> was, I love how a sad story elicits humor. I got to remember that, how to work that. <laughs> Want another sad story? No. <laughs> so, also, some would head out to Pioneer Square, you know, Seattle, right? And uh, there was one fellow who, he's a skinny Filipino guy. And, you know, cash is like falling out of his pocket. I saw him at the bar, you know, it's just all over. And he's, you know, scoping out, finding himself a prostitute, you know, and the woman kind of sidles up to him. Says, Let's go to the hotel room. And he was kind of, you know, drinking problems, I think. On the boat, they get that way when they, we couldn't have any alcohol, so people would shake a lot. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Helps with your writing skills. <laughs> uh, so this uh, fella gets, gets up into the hotel room. He's got the lady with him, you know, and about to take his shirt off. And there's a knock at the door. And, you know, he goes over in room service and he opens it up. And there's these two massive Samoans, also fishermen, massive. And the little skinny Filipino who they'd been, you know, haranguing the whole entire season, two months at sea. And they're like, money boy. Give it to me, or you're dead. And the kid's like, here you go, and we'll take the woman too, and off they go. So he came climbing back to the boat. So he made it kind of off the boat, and it lasted for about 12 hours. Then he was back. Yeah, so some people, and then some people go further. You know, we have African Somalians, uh, I remember them. They taught me a great phrase in Wolof, which means slowly, slowly you will catch the monkey in the forest. You know, it's kind of like, take it easy. Well, what these fellas did, <laughs> what these fellas did is they'd uh, go buy some cattle. That's what you do in Africa. That's a sign of wealth. If you, and if you want to get a good wife, which is what they all wanted to do, you got to have a lot of cattle. So that's what they'd spend their money on, get some cattle. Not monkeys, but they made money with fish and then bought cows. You know, No monkeys, but they were slow about it. Uh, there were people, I remember it was 1990, the wall had just fallen down. There were some Czechoslovakians who had been, they'd been sailing through the 80s and buying apartments in Prague. And once the wall fell, uh, if you've ever been to Prague or you've heard of it, you know, before the wall fell, that wasn't the place to go. But now, Boku Rich, they never came back to the boat. <laughs> yeah, and some went even further abroad. Had a great captain, a Bulgarian captain, blue-eyed captain. He had that, the, the, the sea stare. I don't know if you know any sailors or fishermen, they have this stare, especially when they're captains, because you spend all your time up in the wheelhouse looking at this vast horizon, no land anywhere forever, <laughs> for months. So I have this stare, and it's, it's, you would, most of us would say it's that blank stare that you see in people, but a, a sea stare of a captain has more than just that blank stare, he's looking at something, and, and it feels like he's looking through you and at you and beyond you, to something beyond you. Uh, so it's more than a blank stare, but it's kind of like that. Anyway, he was from Bulgaria. He was getting on in his years. He wanted to retire, so you know he was gonna take his payday money, and he thought, I'm going to go to Puka Puka. Okay, you know Seattle. Anybody know Puka Puka? Puka? <laughs> it's one of the islands in the Micronesia state, uh, Micronesia Islands in the South Pacific. And it is an island. Pull out your Google phone and intermission or whatever. Puka Puka. 
P-U-K-A, P-U-K-A. And he uh, arrives on this island and uh, meets the chief of the island he grew, uh, uh, was uh, the kava maker for all the Micronesian islands, uh, and a chief, and he had, I don't know, like seven daughters or something, and this Bulgarian captain, you know, he was getting on in his years, hadn't been married, wanted a wife, so he decided he'd take uh, the 14-year-old. Um, and so the chief said, no, I'll give you my 14-year-old, but you need to bring me cows. No, he didn't want cows. He wanted a Ford pickup because there were no Ford pickups on this island of Puka Puka. So the Bulgarian blue-eyed captain shipped a Ford truck to Puka Puka, and there you had it. Uh, and he got married. And uh, I guess last I heard, I met him in a bar a year later or something like that. And then he went for a second. She was 16. So he had a 16 and 14-year-old. Now he's retired on Puka Puka. So, that will forever remain in your head, right? I know Puka Puka. There's a blue-eyed Bulgarian captain, and he's married to two underage women. <laughs> They're probably not underage now. Yeah, farther abroad. So I had an Icelandic captain. He liked to go off to Rio. Iceland, his name was Christian. I remember his name, because he'd always laugh. He's like, Christian, <laughs> such an irony. I'm not a good Christian. <laughs> Yeah, he, he was about 13 when he boarded his first freighter bound for Bremerhaven, Germany. Um, and he'd saved up his money as a youth. Uh, I, he told me these great stories, you know, this is like 1940s, 50s, growing up in Iceland. Um, anybody been to Iceland? <laughs> All right, look up Chris, Christian Peterson. That's his name. He's not there now. He's in Gloucester, Mass. But uh, Christian, anyway, growing up on the island, you know, they, he liked to go see movies. They had one theater. Movies were cheap. And uh, to go to the theater, you got to pay. It was like a nickel or something. He was like, how do I make money? Well, they had this quota on seagulls. This was like a legal quota. If you brought in dead seagulls, they paid, it for, paid you for it because they were this huge nuisance, like rats. On, on the island. And he, so he got in trouble. First, he would shoot them, but he was grinding up his gunpowder in his grandmother's coffee mill. And so the coffee was kind of tasting funny, and he got caught. And so that wasn't good anymore. So then he, they got clever. They realized if you spray paint the back of a seagull, other seagulls will attack it and kill it. So they, it was genius. They just spray paint seagulls and they all kill each other. You know, it's like clockwork orange or something. I don't know. <laughs> On Iceland and they just, uh, he made his money that way. But yeah, at 13, he's in Bremerhaven. Goes, all the sailors hit the whorehouses. He's right with them. The 13-year-old being taken care of by the madam of the house. She loved him, called him his uh, Kleine Kainst because he reminded her of her, her son that had died in World War II. Yeah, and he describes, you know, sitting at breakfast and the women coming down in disarray and uh, quite an experience. So he liked to go to Rio and, of course, visit the whorehouses and had this uh, one woman he loved so much he saw her nightly. And his money was going, 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 gone until the last night. And he's like, come on, baby, just one more for love. She looked at him and said, money is money, business is business, and love is bullshit. You pay. <laughs> He didn't get his love. So, yeah, he, uh, this is where they go, far off. And where did I end up going? Well, I often went off traveling Europe, and I wasn't going to whorehouses. Sorry to disappoint you. I was, like, visiting museums and <laughs> castles and things like that. But I ended up in Mexico and spent uh, all my time, about 13 years, I ended up fishing like this, two months at sea, two months down in Mexico. It was a great life. I drank a lot of tequila. And... That paper money went a long way, and I'm still standing. 
<laughs> so. Miss Laura Mello! Hello. Okay, so in the seventh grade, like a lot of girls, I did something really embarrassing, which was to start a prayer journal. And it was really embarrassing. And conveniently, my spring break of that same year, I went to visit one of the people who I prayed for the most in my prayer journal, which was my one uncle who was not Christian. All of my entire extended family was very, very Christian. I had one uncle who was not, and he incidentally was my favorite, but I also prayed for him a lot behind his back. <laughs> so for spring break, I go to Los Angeles for the very first time, and this uncle designed movie posters. Like, it was super fucking cool. Like, he designed movie posters, and he designed billboards for big studio television shows, and I was just excited to experience an entire world I had never experienced. And one of those things was, he basically gave me a list of television shows that he had worked on, he was like, pick one, we'll go on a set visit. And I was so excited, but I also had no idea what any of these TV shows were. I'd never heard of a single one. And so I basically picked the one that sounded the most Christian, which was a little show called Seventh Heaven. I don't know if you guys, do you remember that one? Yeah. Like current Laura will never forgive seventh grade Laura for not choosing Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but that's, that's another story. So seventh grade Christian Laura chose Seventh Heaven and in the days when I was in LA and like leading up to my set visit, I got a little delusional, I must say, in my like prayers to God. I was like, dear God, what if one of the background actors gets sick and you're like, Laura's there and like, they're like, oh God, we need an extra person. Like you come be in the set. And, an <laughs> and another one was like, dear God, is Andrew Keegan a Christian? Like, what do you think? Maybe I could, like, help lead Andrew Keegan to God. Like, how cool would that be? Or, or Jessica Biel, who was in that show, I was like, what if we meet, we start talking, and, like, we really get along? And she's like, let's keep in touch. Like, these were the kind of delusions I was having in the days leading up to the set visit. So... We actually go, we drive, we get onto this lot, and this was in the days before like DVD specials or behind the scenes. I had zero idea about what, what went into like making a full-blown production, no idea. And we pull up into this huge fucking warehouse, like we have to go through security, like checking cameras, all this crazy shit, and we go into this warehouse and there's literally like fake houses in there with fake yards and fake toilets and like walls that pull apart and then go back in. And it was unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. And after our tour of the inside set, we go out behind the warehouse and where they're actually like filming a scene. And I get to sit in one of the tall like director's chairs and watch them do their magic and I swear to God, I've never been so fascinated in my life. Like from everything between 
the crew members like chain smoking in between sets to the actors like saying the exact same fucking lines over and over and over again to like the big equipment they'd shift like two inches in between takes. Everything about it was amazing. And after about two hours, I didn't even realize it had been two hours, but my uncle was like, okay, it's time to go. And uh, I was about to leave and I'm like, I see Jessica Biel. Like I have to go talk to Jessica Biel, like God might ordain this, I don't know. So I walk over to her and I, I, start, I strike up this conversation with Jessica Biel and she was very nice and I said really clever things like, I also like basketball. And uh, I, I think she was duly impressed, but, uh, but at the end she, she didn't say she wanted to keep in contact the bitch, but. Um, <laughs> But we leave the set, and on the way home, I literally do not say a word to my uncle. Like, in my mind, I'm just, like, filing through this experience and thinking, like, this is going to stick with me forever. Like, this, this experience had such an impact on me. And fast forward several, several years, I'm a student at Boise State, and all of a sudden I'm back in Los Angeles with the same uncle at his house, and he and his wife, my aunt, have gotten me an internship on my very first independent film ever. And this is like big news. I'm super fucking excited. And in between that time, I had had a, a somewhat violent divorce with religion. And <laughs> it was a little bit violent. I, I traded in my prayer journal for a regular journal where I was just like writing down my thoughts and my day-to-day -day shit. And so I was in Los Angeles. I start going on set and being on set on a feature-length film, like with a full-size crew, this is like 50 to 70 people plus, and they're all working together to make one like little square of imagery fit a vision. And it's unlike anything collaboration I've ever experienced in my life and I was in love instantly and I started writing my journal on a daily basis every night I go home and I just write about the experience and it was no longer to God but uh, it was still satisfying and uh, yeah and my uncle and aunt graciously like uh, this was the same uncle who I was living with and his wife my aunt was also working crew on this film, and they had gotten me this role, and it was amazing. And about two weeks in, I got invited to a party at an actor's house. I was like, oh my god, I'm this little intern, and I'm unpaid, and I know nothing, and yet this actor's inviting me. It was a big fucking deal. And so my aunt, who also worked on this film, we went together. We went to this party. And at first, this, at first, this party felt very normal. Uh, again, I had just recently left religion. I didn't necessarily know a lot of people from the outside world and <laughs> people who didn't all automatically like think the way I thought. And uh, there was a lot of strange parallels, like worth, work ethic aside, there was a lot of strange parallels socially with like junior high church camps that I had gone to. <laughs> Like, there was a lot of people, like, becoming really fast friends, like, too fast to make sense, and, like, making enemies too fast to make sense, and, like, really making inappropriate crushes, and you're just like, okay, this feels like junior high, but it's fun, I'm gonna go with it. Um, so I get invited to this party, and 
like the party feels fairly normal at first like we're just getting to know each other in a non-working environment but as the night goes on like people are drinking more and more and they're getting weirder and weirder and again me being from a fairly sheltered background like all of a sudden there's someone there with a video camera and they're like recording people doing really dumb shit like <laughs> dumb drunken shit on camera and like telling girls who aren't lesbians to kiss on camera like stupid stuff like that and then also I had never seen a penis piercing before this night. I saw one that night. I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. And all of a sudden I'm seeing it, that's cool. Um, but as the party progresses, like people, like the normal people are starting to leave. Like the normal balanced people are exiting. And pretty soon there's just like a handful of us and I'm hanging out in the living room with this guy who, I'll just call him Creepy Phil, and <laughs> Creepy Phil and I, Creepy Phil and I are hanging out on the couch, and pretty soon we look around and we notice that like the other like four or five people, I don't even remember exactly how many, have like moved to the bedroom around the corner, and I'm like, hmm, that could be normal, <laughs> right? Like the people in the party, they're just hanging out over there, right? So. We continued to hang out, and pretty soon, there's a very weird silence coming from that room. We're like, what are they doing in there? And all of a sudden, there's very weird noises coming from that room. And my aunt, who I was working on this film with, who's married to my blood relative uncle, is one of the members in that room. And so, I'm sitting on this couch, and creepy Phil grabs my hand, and he's like, let's go see what they're doing. And I'm like, you know, I don't know that I want to see what they're doing. Like, maybe ignorance is bliss or it's just, like, my mental sanity. I don't have the desire to go over there. But he grabs my hand and he pulls me over to the room. It's just a few feet away. And, like, he opens the door. He only opens it a crack, a foot or two. And, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I... Honestly, to this day, don't know exactly what I saw. I feel like I maybe made some of it up in my head. But in my mind, what I saw was a fucking pile of naked bodies with, like, arms and legs knotted with whatever else in this pile on the bed. And I instantly, like, ran back to the couch. I was like, I don't need to see that. And when creepy Phil found out that I was not going to have sex with him on the couch, he left to go home to his girlfriend. Yeah, and, um, and so then all of a sudden, I'm the fucking weirdo sitting on the couch by myself while an, or like an orgy goes on like three feet away. And I felt really weird about life. I was like, this is a fucking cliche. Like, I, I had maybe heard that like, you know, Hollywood actors had orgies at their house or whatever, but I was like, I didn't think this was a real thing. I thought it was like a made-up, you know, trope of some kind, like just the orgy cliche, really? And here I am in my first movie, my first Hollywood actor party, and it's happening, including my aunt. So I was feeling some very weird things, and I'm sitting there by myself, and the strangest loneliness came over me. Like, I was sitting there by myself, and I'm like... 
okay, I'm the weirdo who's deciding to not be a part of this orgy, but also I'm kind of glad, you know, I'm like a little bit proud I'm not a part of the orgy, but what the fuck do I do? Like, I've loved this uncle since I was a child, and like, this is his wife, and he's in there, and like, am I obligated to do something? You know, I, I, I was kind of battling with myself, and, and after a little while, I got a little fucking angry. I was like a little bit petulant, and I turned up the radio. I'm like, I don't want to fucking hear the noises coming out of there. I want to be done with it. But I couldn't leave because my aunt had driven us, and her purse and her keys were in the bedroom. And I was like, I'm, I'm not going to go back in there. So I basically, like, sat there, and suffered through it, and I don't even know exactly how long, a couple of, an hour, maybe, I don't know, whatever, but they they start coming out of the bedroom, and um, I'm trying to act cool, because I was probably, like, the most, like, unexperienced prudish person there at the time, and I'm like, yeah, this is so funny, you guys, like, so funny what you just did, group sex and all, and, uh, so funny and then and then the last person to come out is my aunt and she comes out and she's like I don't want to fucking talk about it and I was like good I don't want to fucking talk about it either so at that point like I was a sober person she throws me her keys I drive us home she sleeps the entire way we don't say a word the next day or sorry that night I like I get home and I'm just I'm a little conflicted. I don't know how I should feel. It's a weird experience. I've never been through it before. And I go to my daily journal writing. And I, like, write down about this party. I'm like, I just basically unburden my soul in my journal. I'm like, this is fucking weird. I don't know how to feel about it. Here's all this weird shit that happened. And then things go back to normal. Like, the next couple of days, we go back to set. We go back to work. I'm still living at the house with my aunt and uncle and, like, trying to keep this weirdo secret to myself. And a couple days later, my uncle calls me. I was off set, like, running an errand, and I was about to go back to set. He calls me, and he's like, Laura, I know what happened at the party. Someone told me, and... I just want to warn you that your aunt is looking for someone to blame. Like, she's wondering who, you know, was a tattletale, and she thinks it might be you. I told her it wasn't you. But anyway, so I'm freaking out. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I am not mature enough to handle this kind of shit. And so, (laughs) at all. And so I pull up to set, and sure enough, my aunt fucking beelines for me. She's like, did you tell your uncle? And I'm like, I didn't. I have no idea how he knows. Like, it's super weird. I have no idea. And so I go back home. Like, at, well, later that day on set, like, tensions were really high because, like I had said, people were video cameraing the party. And on set that day, people were with spouses, mostly, were like, what happened to the video camera? Like, what happened to that videotape? Who has it? What are they going to do with it? What's even on it? And none, none of us really knew. It became this, like, mystery tension where people were like, fuck. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be caught for whatever I don't even remember doing. So I go home after set, and my uncle and aunt are dealing with their own shit, and I basically go straight to my room, 
and I go to write because that's been my catharsis, you know, like I'm just, I just want to write about things and get off my chest. I open up my journal and I see a very strange like smudge on the entry before where I was about to write and I'm like, what? So I turn a couple pages and I see these like round little dots with bleeding ink. And I was sitting there thinking for a moment, I was like, wait, what is it? I was like, was I crying when I wrote this entry about the party? I'm like, no, that wasn't me. Someone else was crying when they read my entry about the party. And I realized it must have been my uncle. And in that moment, I was like, I love these people so much, you know, and they've like become so important in my life. And I'm like, have I become responsible for them breaking up? Have I become responsible for my their daughter, my cousin becoming an, you know, child of divorce? I'm like, would this have happened if I wasn't there? And I just got like really heavy with these thoughts. I was like, fuck. <laughs> and a couple of days later, my uncle sat me down and he actually admitted, like he had been saying for a long time that he heard the story from someone else. My uncle sat me down, he was like, he admitted he read my journal. And that's how this entire thing started. But he also said, your aunt and I love each other. It's not your fault. We want to work it out. Which was like the most adult fucking conversation I had ever had in my life at that point. <laughs> it was insane. And so uh, at that point, it was like, oh my god, I, I am so in love with making movies. I am in love with this process, with the dynamic. But I'm like, is every single movie so dramatic and like crazy? I'm like, I, I don't even know. And a couple of years ago, I was at the, the Sundance Film Festival with a movie that I had been a part of. And, um, and I actually crossed paths with one of the guys who had been a part of the orgy. Like, he was one of the participants. <laughs> and he had asked me, he was like, hey, I was, you know, I've been thinking about doing a short film about that, that one night, that one party. He's like, do you want to help me write this story? And I was like, um. <laughs> and I was thinking through all the films I had done. You know, at this point, I had been like, a dozen or so films past that and never had encountered another orgy, by the way. Uh, but, uh, but he was like, do you want to be a part of this, you know, writing this film? And I was like, uh, I don't know, like Hollywood orgy, it just sounds too fucking cliche. Like, I can't do it, so. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Story Story Late Night is brought to you by our story party. Board members Bob Haycock, Jody Eichelberger, Amy Moran, Hannah Schaefer, Karen Moore, and Elizabeth McKenna. Volunteer coordinator Ginny Estes, and yours truly, Jessica Holmes. The Late Night season is brought to you with generous support from the iconic Over 19 shop. Paper was made possible with the support of Edwards Greenhouse. Talk about pulpy. Along with big time support from the Robert Rauschenberg Foundation. Props to the DJ Magic of Stardust Lounge, the podcast production of Stephen Baldessare, the late night theme song by Ned Evett, and the show photography by Paul Betch. Support this story program, find upcoming shows, and stay tuned at storystorynight.org or on SoundCloud, Facebook, and Twitter.
at Story Story Night.